Well, let's do what the man said and dive into our word today. If you got a Bible, hopefully you've gotten to have that maybe a little bit more often now than normal of actually bringing your Bible to church and opening it up and reading it. And maybe not just when you, you know, come into our gatherings here, but like throughout the week, you know, that'd be awesome. Um, so if you have a Bible, um, that's awesome. Let's open that up. Go to Ephesians chapter four. If you don't have a Bible, you may probably have one on your phone. Do that. And if you don't have that, that's okay. Don't freak out. I'm going to read it and we'll all know. And then we're going to chew through each of these Bible verses that we're going to dive into today, kind of word by word, verse by verse. If you're new to MCC, that's what we do around here. Um, uh, there, there's a lot of places you can go and kind of hear you know, three, three ways to have a, have a better marriage or a happier life or do better in relationships and that type of stuff. And what we, we do here is we just are, are kind of taking a book of the Bible and we're just kind of chewing through it word by word, verse by verse to really get into what God really has for us. And we're in this book of Ephesians, which is a letter that Paul wrote, that Paul is an apostle sent out by Jesus to be able to go out and, and, and really plant churches and allow this thing that even is our church here to be able to come into existence. And he writes this letter to a church over 2000 years ago that really applies to our lives here 2000 years later. And he writes this letter to them, helping them understand this big principle, truth and reality, that your identity has to come before your activity. That if you seek to go out and just do some certain things and to be a better person with just your outward actions, you're going to fail miserably. But if you can understand truly who you are, and he makes a point, if you can truly understand who you are in Christ, then that will change everything. And the only way you could get ever to do Christian things is if you fully understand your identity in Christ. And so chapters one, two, and three, he leans into that very, very heavily. He says, you're predestined for adoption by God. He loves you. He cares for you. He's a good father for you. And he sent his son to redeem you out of your sinful life. And he traded his son so that you could have life in and through his son. You're loved, you're careful. Now he empowers you through this son to live a new life. And then chapter four, he kind of turns a corner and goes, okay, now that's who we are. Let's talk about what we do, guys. In chapter four, four verse one, he says, okay, we're going to worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And the calling, we'll talk about that briefly. He says, you've been called into two things specifically. You've been called into oneness with each other to live not at odds anymore, but to actually live together. And then he says, you've been called into oneness and holiness. Another way to put it, the way we talked about it here, is you've, is you've been called into purity personally and unity corporately. Unity and purity is this calling. And then he's gonna spend the rest of the book talking about what in the world does it look like to walk in those two things, to walk in unity, to walk and to live out purity, to actually live this life out based off of who God is and how he is in you and you are in him. Sound good? All right. Hopefully you have found Ephesians 4 by now. Ephesians 4, if you're not there, get there. Ephesians 4, we're going to start in verse number 17. 17 through 24 is what we're going to unpack today. Paul's talking to the church in Ephesus and the church in McDonough, and he says these words. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. 
You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that you inspired these words to be written. And today we just claim and believe that this, this, these words that I just read, that we read together, they are words from you. They're words from God. And you're a God who loves us enough to put your words, to put your instructions, to put your truth down and let it be passed down from generation to generation to generation so that those of us in this room could read it. So that's gotta mean that you love us that you wanna talk to us, that you wanna communicate with us, that you actually see something better for us because you see something better in us. You see, you long to see your son in and through us. And so today I pray as we come and have an encounter with your word, that we would not be left the same. Jesus, I know that you did not go to the cross, go through what you went through so that we could hear things about you and just feel a certain way, or just think a certain thing, or just gain trivial knowledge that we could have in our mind. You went through what you went through so that our lives could be radically different. So that one of the most hard to believe things that could ever happen, a human life changing, could actually happen. Only by your power, only by your will. I pray that you bring that change today. I want to say a specific prayer, Jesus, for the person who's here today, God, who I know is struggling, struggling mentally, struggling with a battle that nobody else knows, feeling the weight of this world, the weight of this life. And Jesus, I pray that today that they would hear and know and fully become aware of that you came to give them new life and there is hope but that hope is only in you. So today I pray that they don't see me, that they don't see a church, that they don't see um, a, a worship service, that they have an encounter with you and you would give them hope and you would bring change to every one of us. In your name, amen. So when you think about Jesus, like cover to cover the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, these are the stories of Jesus that we have. If you had to take what we know of the life and character of Jesus, not what you see on the chosen show or not even necessarily what you saw on the passion of Christ, but really what you read in your Bible, if you had to take all of that, and I know this is a big effort, if you were to take all of that and to try to sum up Jesus's life in one word, what would maybe be one of the words you would sum up the life of Jesus, his life here on earth? I already heard one of them, love. And again, you guys can, we'll, we'll have, have a little fun experiment here. We'll, we'll call it out. If you can think of something, again, I'm not about to give you this, you know, okie doke and kind of hit you with the real right answer. There is no necessarily real right answer on this. It's subjective. This is kind of your opinion. Uh, if you had to sum up Jesus' life in one word, what would you say? Shout it out. Grace, love, some more. Servant, yeah. Humility, that's a good one, yes. What'd you say, Jeff? What's over here? What's this side? Sacrifice, yeah, okay, come on. 
Okay. All, all really good ones. Purity. Yeah, love it. All really good ones. I even heard something from back there in the student section. Look at that. Way to go, guys. Boldness. Um, all, all really good. And I would totally, I totally agree with all of those. This week, as I looked at the passage that we're getting ready to dive into, and I look back at the life of Christ, because again, anytime you're going through stuff that Paul writes, look back and go, okay, where does Jesus's life indicate and give me vivid imagery for the truth that Paul is trying to write and explain here. And as I went back and I looked at Jesus' life, one of the words that I would say now in, in my life, if I had to pick like a top five words to in one word sum up his entire life, I would sum it up by this word, controversy. Every, remember, how did Jesus' life start? Jesus' life, like Christmas, was right around the corner, it started with a reality TV show plot. I'm pregnant and I don't know who the daddy is. All right, like, or God's the dad, or Joseph's like, my wife's pregnant. I don't know how, I know I didn't do it. Like, this is how his story starts, right? His story begins with this controversial things are happening. Like the idea that that God becomes a, a, enters into the womb of of a teenage virgin. Like this is, this is controversial to even think about. And then you go through his whole entire life, you end with the story. And then now here we are 2000 years later going that our God, that Jesus was God. He rose from the grave. Again, like this, all these things are very controversial. And then you look at how he lived his life, especially during those three years that we actually see him, you know, walking around, talking with people, connecting with people. This is controversial. And it wasn't controversial just because he wanted to be some like, you know, you know, uh, influencer rabbi just to say really controversial things for the sake of being controversial to gain a following like most people do nowadays. He was being controversial because he knew that he was God. And he knew that when people bump into me, they should leave differently because they had an encounter with God's son. And so he showed up to a woman like, a, you know, out of well. And she's a woman who was very sexually promiscuous. She had multiple husbands. And in that day and age, she was probably taken advantage of multiple times. He shows up and he's like, hey, uh, can you give me something to drink? And he's there in the middle of the day and he knows she's there in the middle of the day but to avoid anybody because she's feeling shame. And he basically goes on to tell her that, um, that he actually has a water that you can drink from and you'll never get thirsty again. And she's like, bro, hook, I would love some of that water. I'd love to never, never be thirsty again. And then Jesus catches her in this thirst trap and is like, I am that water. And she's like, I didn't see that coming. And, he's, and then she goes, well, I still want some of this water. If you're telling me that all of my deep longings, all of the urges and needs that I have in my life, that you can fulfill those. I, I, I want to drink from that well. And Jesus goes, okay, great. Bring your husband and we'll all drink together. And she goes, oh, I said, shoot, by the way, um, dang, like, no way. I knew he was, I knew this was a setup. Um, she goes, uh, I don't, I don't have a husband. And Jesus goes, yeah, I know. And the man that you're living with right now is not your husband either. And he meets her, he, he confronts her in her sin, but he does it in a loving way. And he meets her in the midst of her controversy but then radically changes her life so much so that she goes out into all of her community, all of her friends and family and says, I just met the Messiah. Jesus shows up to a guy named Zacchaeus and goes, hey Zacchaeus, you've been robbing and stealing from somebody and everybody hates you. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> and, Jesus, and Zacchaeus is like, yeah, I noticed. That's why I was up in the tree. Um, and then Zacchaeus is left radically different. He goes and he gives away more than what he took from the people. And the people who Jesus was most controversial to, guys, was religious people. 
the religious people, were, he, like, it was almost like everybody else, he kind of like took the controversy as it came, but there's one group of people in particular that was like, Jesus was intentionally trying to be as controversial as he could possibly be. Almost at times where you go like, Jesus, did you really want to say it like that? Now, listen, I know in a room like this, when you describe you, you've been going to church enough to know, like, I don't want to call myself religious because that's like about rules and everything. You've heard enough sermons on that. And, you know, you don't want to define yourself as religious. But let me tell you what everybody who's not in this room thinks about you because you're in this room. You're religious. <laughs> and so we got to pay attention to that and know that Jesus's harpet, uh, sharpest and harshest rebukes were against religious people. And that's what other people think you are. So one of the times in Matthew, um, Matthew 25, verse 15, or 23, 15, Jesus said this to religious people. Check out our Jesus. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. That's our Jesus, guys. What do you think about that? Like, he's just roasting these Pharisees and these teachers of the law. He's wading into controversy. And again, He's not doing it to get great sound bites so that he can influence more people. He's not saying these things so that he can polarize two groups of people so that they never connect with each other. The reason he's saying these things is because then and now he wants to create this in our lives, a crisis of faith. A moment in time where what you thought you knew about everything is brought into question. And what Jesus knew is that if he can hit you, whether your crisis with faith was, I thought I could have all of my needs satisfied by romantic sexual relationship. And now Jesus is telling me that is garbage. Or you're on the religious side of things, not the rebellious side of things. And you go, I thought that I could get God on my side if I just did all the things that God told me to do. And I got more people to do all the things God told us to do. And on the outside, we just did everything the right way. He goes, that's garbage too whether it's rebellion or religion, it's garbage. What my God, what my father is after is your heart being radically changed. And I'm gonna give my life so that I can enter into your heart and do the change for you. Controversial things. And what Paul does in our passage here in Ephesians is he picks right up where Jesus left off and says some controversial things to the church in Ephesus that should, if we apply them to our lives rightly here, should also be pretty controversial. If you got a Bible, let's look at verse 17 first. Now this I say to you and testify to the Lord. Let's just hang out right there for a second. This is Paul letting them know, hey, this isn't my opinion. This isn't just me riffing. This isn't me taking a sidebar to let you know how I feel about what you should be doing. This is God saying it to you through my ink. I'm testifying to God about this. And then he goes, here's what I'm saying testifying in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, at first glance, you're like, how's that controversial? It wouldn't have been controversial if the people reading this were Jewish. Cause he says, don't walk like the Gentiles do. If you're Jewish and you read that, you're like, yeah, I know they're idiots. Like I, why would anybody do what they do? That's a really dumb idea. But when Paul says, don't walk like the Gentiles do, who's he talking to? Gentiles, right? It'd be like Paul showing up to us today. Be like, hey, <clears throat> don't walk how Southerners walk. You know, all those people that live below the Bible belt and think they have it all figured out and so crazy about peaches and red dirt and stuff. Like, don't walk like they walk. Don't do what they do. To make it a little broader, because I know not everybody in here is from the South, it's Paul going, hey, 
you must no longer walk like Americans walk, which that one, yeah. Now we're starting to see how this can be a little controversial because some of us, we like our Americanism. We like our Jesus with the flag draped around his shoulders. We like that guy. So you're telling me I should, like, you're saying don't walk like Americans walk? Don't walk like Gentiles walk? And I almost get this, like, I, and again, I'm sorry, I think about things in, in real living color stuff. So, like, I, Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians while he was in prison. And somebody hand delivers the letter to him, to the church leaders there at Ephesus, the elders at the church. And I just imagine, you know, the elder getting it first, the one who, you know, checks the mail, I guess. You know, he, he's there and he opens it up and he gets all the way one, two, three. He gets a little bit ways through four. And then he comes to this verse and he goes, dang, I don't know how I'm going to get that point across today. To, you know, when everybody shows up, that people are going to, I, he's envisioning people raising their hand in the, in the church home as they hear this and somebody going, <clears throat> But aren't we Gentiles? And that's why he has the rest of the, 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 the whole letter to explain what in the world he means by, hey, we don't walk like we walk anymore. And what, what's happening here is Paul is trying to show to the Ephesians and the McDonnans that your identity now is not in your culture it is not in your country. It is not primarily even in your skin color, nationality, or upbringing. Your identity is firmly and foremost in Christ. And the way you walk is not dictated by your culture. The way you walk is not dictated by what way you politically lean. The way you walk is based off of your identity in Christ and how he has transformed the way you think about everything, the way you think about your culture, the way you think about what people from your, your side of the tracks do with money, the way you think about what people uh, in your family do when a marriage gets hard. He's saying, you've got to rethink about all of those things because now you're not in your last name, you are in Christ name. And he comes through the gate swinging and he says, these Gentiles, they're walking the futility of their minds. This word futility means vanity, emptiness, devoid of any meaning. And it's a mental thing. Mentally, they're, they're just basically saying life has no purpose. Life has no meaning. I can do what I want to do. Now make this connection here between what we do physically with our walk and our lifestyle and what we think. And Paul's trying to get the church in Ephesus to see this, and he wants us to see this, that so you think, so you live. That you can't, that you can't in your mind go, this is what I believe, and then look on the outside and see all the things that you're doing, and then have all those things that you say you're doing not match up with what you say you're believing, and that belief not be proved false. So if I say like, man, ah, or, or if, if, if I were to say, you know what, I, I really, I know I'm getting ready to enter into my 40s and I know my health is more critical. And so because of that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start, you know, eating less red meat. And again, some of you people are laughing, that's not gonna happen. And I, and, I, and I came and I was like, I just, I'm gonna be a vegetarian from now on because I believe in the benefits of that. Now, if that's your story, that's fine. That's great, I'm, I'm all for it. Like if that's you, go for it. The point I'm trying to make is, if, if you saw me at IHOP, just tearing up a Denver, Denver omelet, Saturday morning, you're going, okay, you can say that that's what you believe, but your actions don't match it. And then what does that ultimately undermine? The thing I say I believe. He's trying to make this connection to, he's trying to get us to live true lives. 
And when he talks about the futility of their mind, the point he's trying to make there is at the end of the day, life for them really was meaningless. There was no higher power. There was no higher purpose. There was no end game because it was just about meeting your own essential pleasurable needs there in the moment, which is why he goes on from there and starts to talk about the way they thought about things and the things they did with their body and because of their hard hearts, what they gave themselves away to. He said they were darkened in their understanding. That word darkened translates to blindness. They had closed their eyes to the things of God, the truths of God. And this darkness this darkened in their understanding, don't get it twisted here. This is not God purposely putting his hand over their eyes and going, I don't want you to see me. Romans chapter one, if you really want to understand what in the world Paul is after in these few verses here, go back and read Romans one in your quiet time this week. In Romans chapter one, what Paul does is he explains to the the church there in Rome that from the very beginning of time, God has made his invisible qualities, his holy nature, his truth about who he is as a God. He has made that visible to all creation. And then he says a real banger. He goes, so that nobody would have any excuse as to why they did not know him. So that whole thing that people come to and that whole argument about like, well, how can you believe in God? Well, what about if if Jesus really is the only way to get to heaven? Well, what about the tribe that's never been reached before out in the middle of the jungle? What about them? If nobody's ever told them about Jesus? When Roman one, Paul makes it very clear. And this is, I think what he's after here. God has made it very clear. God has done everything that he would need to do to hold them accountable to whether or not they gave their life their trust and their hope and their life to that God. And again, if you know, play the other side of that coin, right? If that tribe there in, that, in the far reaches of the Amazon jungle, if they did not know about God, they had no idea who Jesus was or his son, or they had no reference to there being a higher power God creator, and God was just gonna let them skate free on that, what would be the worst possible thing that we could do as a church? <laughs> go get their flag to hang up over here, right? We go tell them about God. Now, where are they? They're on the hook, you know? <laughs> so no, that's not, that's not where we're at. We're like, no, we got to spread the word. We got to go get the gospel going. We, we got to go show the gospel to those people because right now they're still on the hook as to what you did with your belief in God. Did your faith, what you believed about God in your head and your heart, did actually match how you lived your life? And he's saying they were darkened in their understanding as if you took a friend of yours who was blind and you found a really high place in Henry County. I don't know where that is. I found a high place where you could see the beautiful horizon. And you took him out tonight because you knew there was probably gonna be a beautiful sunset. And you took your blind friend up there and you took him all the way up to the top and you, you sat on the, uh, your, your tailgate and you looked out at the sunset or you looked out at the sunset. They faced the sunset and you said, please help me understand. You said to your blind friend, please help me understand the sunset. Like so, well, I've heard they're colorful, but I can't see this one. That's the point that Paul is trying to make is that the geniuses, the astrophysicists, the societal psychologists, experts in all these fields, whether it be gender studies, science, COVID, all these experts and all these other types of things, They are seeing all the evidence of God and closing their eyes to the God behind it. And you felt this. Some of you have felt this in the room when you you were there with uh, your spouse 
or a baby was born and you held that baby in your arms. And what, what Paul is after here, when he says they were darkened in their understanding, it's not like a light switch just gets thrown off. It's a perpetual thing. And whether you were at the church in Ephesus or you were here today, you can't, in my opinion, you can't hold a newborn baby in your arms and just watch the terror that is usually childbirth. I mean, just you can close your eyes and just hear what's happened in that room. And it's traumatic. Um, or at least it was for me. My wife is a hero. Um, you women are all heroes. We should have Mother's Day every other day. Um, but then you hold this, this, this beautiful thing in your arms. And whether you're the mother or the father, it takes an intense darkening of your mind and hardening of your heart to just go, this is just a lump of cells that has no purpose and no meaning. And I could throw it in the dumpster on my way home and it would mean nothing more than if it lived a great life and became the ruler of nations because it is all meaningless and devoid of any purpose. It takes an intense darkening of the mind and hardening of the heart to believe that, which is, which is why Christian apologists would argue it takes way more faith to believe that there is no God than the faith that it takes to believe that there is. This is the point that Paul, this is Paul being an apologist to the church in Ephesus. Because remember, nobody in Ephesus, guys, went to Sunday school. Nobody in Ephesus was at VBS Harawanas. They're all coming into church. When, when the church elders sit down with this letter to Paul, it would be as if they were sitting in a giant living room with a bunch of people like us who had already gone and lived out and created 30, 40, 20, 60, maybe even years worth of really terrible habits, worth of really uh, debaucherous living, sinful life. And that's who he's writing to. Not like kids in the children's ministry who are very still formable and pliable and can be kind of had their worldview shifted and changed. They already had a very polytheistic worldview. What I mean by that polytheistic is they believed in all sorts of gods. They had a God for this, a God for that, a God for sex, a God for money, a God for farm, a God for, you know, you name it. We had a God for everything. And I, whichever, depending on what God I need in that moment, I'll go worship or do whatever that God needs to do, which usually entailed money, sometimes entailed physical things, sexual and orientation. I'll do whatever I got to do to get that God on my side. Now we're just the exact opposite. We believe there is no God. So I'll just do whatever I want to get Myself on my side. I am the ultimate God. We'll get more into that in a second. But he says, they're darkening their understanding. <clears throat> and he says, they're alienated from the life of God. Here's why. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Okay, so how'd that get there? Well, that got there due to the hardness of their heart. So you kind of have to read this verse backwards. Their hearts got hard. Because their hearts were hard, they were not able to get and receive the wisdom of God. And therefore, because their hearts got hard to the just obviously visible things of God, they became ignorant. This is, this is why, despite whatever PhD you have, despite uh, what, whatever your, your professor at college, despite them being in the world's terminology, so incredibly wise, so incredibly brilliant, in God's eyes, they're ignorant but because in his view, they've closed their eyes to the most obvious thing possible, him. He says, because of their hard hearts, ignorance and lack of wisdom of who he is, they have now been alienated from God. Now, again, don't get that verse twisted. What he's not saying is God stiff armed them in the face because of how dumb they were being because they had hard hearts. 
That's not what that verse means. In Ephesians 2, you go back, you remember, he's writing specifically to the Gentiles. Paul, Paul's leaning into them individually. And he says, you who were once far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. And he's saying, what, what he's saying here is all of you, before you understood what truly was happening through the blood of Christ, all of you were far off. Some of you have chosen through your hardness of heart though, to remain far off. God didn't alienate you. You alienated yourself because you refused to be drawn in, drawn near to that loving, caring, kind, son giving father who gave the blood of his son for you. So you remain alienated because your heart got hard. Now we can look at these verses here and it's easy just to kind of go, well, man, that, that sounds a lot like our culture. And then you add on top of that, verse 19, they become callous. It's just numb. So much bad is happening and so much perversion is happening. It's just like, it doesn't even phase us anymore. And that kid show is now talking about God knows what. And it's just like, well, that's just what shows are on now. And, and that's just what people wear now. And that's just kind of how things are now. And yeah, that's a, another school shooting and another bombing and another X, Y, Z. And now, yeah, you can pick whatever one you want to pick. You just do all that type of stuff. It's just callous. We just become callous to it. And Paul is waiting. Paul is not trying to be uncontroversial to the Ephesus church. He is telling them, point blank, who they were and who maybe even, and again, I, I, the church in Ephesus is three, maybe four years old. When, Paul, when they get this letter from Paul, I know for sure Paul spent three years there. Acts makes that very clear. Paul, Paul, Paul spent three years in Ephesus. So the church there in Ephesus is about three years old, which I don't know about you and your walk with Christ. And some of you who are newer in your walk with Christ need to pay attention to this. That year three to four, after spiritual awakening, after you like have your eyes open to Christ, not necessarily after you get baptized, because sometimes you get baptized and then you, your kid faith doesn't match your grown up life and you have to have kind of like another awakening and, and really God becomes real to you. After whatever that moment is, you get about three or four years of what I would call the Christian honeymoon phase where things are kind of good. And you know what you're going off of there? You're going off of just the emotions and this new life and I'm a Christian and it's still kind of new and it's still kind of fresh. But then the same way, almost kind of in marriage, you enter into years like four, five, six, seven and you get out of that. And life gets real. And Paul's writing to them knowing that their self-discipline, that all those things that they used to do, all those old habits can have a propensity to creep back in to who they are. And he goes, guys, that's not who you are. You have become something different. He says, don't get callous to that. And then as I was reading through and prepping through this, these are the words that stood out to me like no other, given themselves up. And see this, this is where I think Satan does some of his best damage. Is he gets us to be people who believe his lie. And his big life or his big lie is that live life for you doesn't equal live life for him. See, look, here, track with me on this. Satan is smart enough to not just come at you and go, hey, listen, I know you're just in high school and you got a lot of life ahead of you. Let me make a deal with you. Live your life for me. 
tell everybody you're around that you live for Satan. Like he's not coming to you and you older people and be like, listen, has this Jesus thing worked out for you? Your kid, some of your kids died before you. You're still bankrupt. Like you, you'd have nothing to show for this long life you have. If you'll just live for me, we may have 10 or so years left, but if you'll just live for me in these 10 years, I promise it'll be good. He doesn't come at you like that. He knows that you have enough wisdom in your brain to not go, that sounds like a good idea. Like he, like nobody in this room, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, but nobody in this room is stupid enough to be like, yeah, that sounds good. He knows that you will not bite hook, line, and sinker for live for me. But you will bite hook, line, and sinker for live for you. And that's why he propagates that lie. That's why at this very moment, you could go to TJ Maxx Home Goods and find a throw pillow that says, be true to you. All right? See, that's one of his biggest lies. Because what he knows is that when you think that you're not giving yourself up to anybody else, and again, young men in the room, listen to this. Young, our culture tells young men that the most thing you can do to know that you really are a man is the least you can care about what anybody else thinks. The more you cannot care, the more a man you are. I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what you think about me. I, don't, I can do it all on my own. I don't need anybody. I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Now I'm officially a man. So much so now, it, it, like there's a softer version of it that speaks to our young men that goes, if people don't validate you, if people don't show you the attention and approval, then you check out and you leave because those people don't, they don't see your worth. Do you know how often my children see my worth? Do you know how often my children validate me? And again, this is the message. Again, we, all, we, we hear those things and that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it sneaks all the way into our life. And that's why we have, have men making babies, but not raising babies. Because they're not, kids not validate. Like, I, I mean, at this point, maybe 15, 16, 17, there may be some validation that comes. I don't, I don't know you older dads in the room. Give me a hint on that. But I'm not there to be validated by a child. In a culture that says, Anywhere where somebody doesn't validate you, don't care about them, move on, go get somewhere where it will serve you and give you pleasure. That's a lie from Satan. And what happens is you think you're freeing yourself up to be Lone Ranger and to be a cowboy. And what you've really done is you've made yourself a slave to yourself. And now your life is contingent on where you can get approval from people or where you can get pleasure from the next girl or the next girl or the next job or the next job. And that's what it's all becoming, not really based off of how I'm not actually free. You're actually now a slave. And what's crazy is you don't realize this. You think you're a slave to yourself and you think you're serving yourself, but really you're serving Satan. Because do what makes you feel good. And hell, do you know how to translate that? And hell that translates to do what makes me feel good. Because remember, Satan... Lucifer, wherever you want to call him, and all the demons in hell, they know that their end is set. They know that King Jesus, God, that they win in the end. Their eternity is set. They know the final score of the game. It's happened at the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. They know that. They have lost. But what they long to do more than anything else is to take as many of you and me down as possible. 
Satan knows that he could not defeat Jesus, but he wants to defeat every person who Jesus loves, me, you, and everybody else in between. And he doesn't defeat us with bullets and bombs. He defeats you with lies on pillows at TJ Maxx. He defeats you in the music you put in your podcast, the podcast you put in your ear. He defeats you with what you watch. He defeats you with a lie that says, do what makes you feel best. He, put, he defeats you with a lie that says, go where people validate you and nowhere else and abandon and leave anywhere who doesn't. That's how he wins. And what, what Paul is after here is going, <clears throat> he's saying they have given themselves up to sensuality to doing what satisfies their senses, to doing what satisfies their flesh. Now, before we just chunk this whole idea that we shouldn't give ourselves up to somebody, I need you to understand something very clearly. Jesus and Satan have the same goal for your life. They both want you to give yourself up to them. Satan will manipulate, rape, abuse, and do everything he can to ruin your utter life. Jesus, on the other hand, says, give yourself up to me, please. I am your only hope. If, I, if you do not give yourself up, lay yourself down, that's why he said, hey, if anybody wants me to be my disciple, they've got to die to themselves. It was Jesus' way of saying, you've got to give yourself up or you cannot live to me. And then when you do, you don't get your life in a better version that kind of has some Jesus dust on it, you get his life lived through you. That's what he's getting ready to talk about in the coming verses. He says, that is not the way you learned Christ, guys. Assuming that you have heard about him and that you were taught him, that is the truth that is Jesus. And again, he's saying, learned Christ. Don't miss that. Not the way you felt Christ, the way you learned him. It's a, it's a mental aptitude that had to happen here. It had to be something that we grasped in our mind. We learned some things about him. He says, that's not the Jesus you learned. We didn't learn a Jesus that just said, go do what makes you feel good. We didn't learn a Jesus that says, redefine truth based off of whatever your generation says it is. We learned a Jesus that said, this is truth. And from generation and from age to age, this is not changing. This truth isn't going anywhere. And you can either get under it or you can suffer. And then he gives them the hope. And I hope you see the hope in this. He says, here's what we have to do though. He, and remember, he's talking to these Ephesians who have been not following Christ probably longer than most people in this room have not been following Christ. Most people in this room, maybe you've been following Christ for a while. So this may not land the same way it landed in the room, but he tells this room full of people who are in their fourth, fifth, and sixth year of being Christians He's still telling them this, put off your old self, lay it all down. None of you got out of the waters of baptism and you were just immediately good, happy Ned Flanders type of people who were just, everybody got along with and never back talk and never gossiped and never wanted to see somebody get in a fight. And so you kind of stay along or see, oh, they're arguing. Oh, oh, let's, uh, let's, let's see what happens here. You know, like, you know, we're all those people still, but he's still going, you got to put off that old self. And it's an action. It's not just something like, because you know what your new self is, because you read chapters one, two, and three, because you know who you now are in Christ. Now we put that off. We put off all our old things, our old habits, our old ways of living, our old ways of spending money. Jesus made it very clear in the gospels. If you wanna know where your heart is, look at where your money goes. He said, put off your old self, put off your old ways of spending, put off your old ways of budgeting, put off your old ways of parenting. 
He says, and put on something new. Because this old self, it belonged to your former manner of life. And it was corrupt because, look at this, it had deceitful desires. It's not just what you did, it's what you desired to do. Which track with me on this. Um, this past week, uh, I came across this uh, dead guy, John Ed- Jonathan Edwards. He's a Puritan theologian, uh, wrote some amazing things. And he was uh, giving some commentary on this passage. And he was talking about our desires and how deceitful our desires are. All right, so this whole verse is about to boil kind of what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, we have to live moral lives. So the person who comes into my office says, Trent, man, I really just love you know, smoking three or four blunts a week and, and I really love having sex with my girlfriend. It's kind of what I like to do. Do I have to, get that, do I have to give that up in order to become a Christian? Obviously, I'm gonna go, yeah. And you probably knew that before you got in here, right? Like none of you were shocked to go, hey, if I become a Christian, I, I, I can't you know, rob Hooters at lunch today. Like nobody was like, man, I just didn't know that. And what Jonathan Edwards talks about is there are two types of morality. What I'm talking about is morals, like being pure, doing the right thing, telling the truth, being honest. He says, there's two types of morality. There is the first type of morality and that's based and rooted in pride and fear. So the thing that keeps me from robbing Hooters today is going, I'm afraid that I'll get caught and then put in jail if I rob Hooters at lunch. I love hot wings, but it's not worth the risk, okay? I'm afraid to do that. And that's what keeps many of you from doing deceitful, sinful things that you actually desire to do. The, the, the really cute uh, you know, g- girl at work, like there's a, there, fellas, there's, there's a desire there, but you know there's fear of what would happen if you let that desire run full force and you don't do it. So there's fear that keeps us from doing bad, dumb things. And then there's pride. Now pride would be, well, I don't wanna go rob Hooters because what would the church think? You know, well, they would think much less of me and I wanna protect my pride and not rob Hooters. You know, what, that, first of all, Hooters, Trent, seriously, gosh. Um, could you rob Cheddar's or something? You had to go to Hooters, jeez. Um, did you already know somebody there? Was it an inside job? You know, like it will swirl, you know, there's all sorts of conspiracies. And that's not the controversy I'm talking about here. But, but look at how you parent, okay? That's how you parent, right? We parent and correct our kids on those same two lines. Hey, you better not cheat on this test in high school. If you cheat on this test, you're never gonna learn how to do it the right way. And if you never learn how to do it the right way, you're not ever gonna get the skill. And if you don't get the skill, then you're not gonna get into school. If you don't get into school, you're not gonna get a job. So it's, I'm not gonna cheat, why? Because I'm afraid. Fear-based morality or pride. Hey, we're not cheaters in this family. We work hard, we do what's right. To do this, I would lose pride that I have in you. If, you, if you're a cheater, that's not my son, you're not my son. We don't cheat, that's not what we do. We parent like that, right? And I, as I came across this, my mind just blowing because like I t- I t- I will, when my kids do stupid things, I, especially my older one, I will look at them and go, that's not what she makes do. And you know what I'm tapping into there? Pride, pride in our last name. And Jonathan Edwards, he comes along and he goes, and I think under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit goes, there's gonna come a moment in time where the pride is trumped by the reward of doing the bad thing. And what do you do when you still go and do it? 
He said, if you have pride-based morality or fear-based morality, all you have is religiosity. You're just keeping the rules because you're afraid of getting in trouble. You're just keeping the rules because you're afraid of what somebody else would think about you. And that is fear-based morality. He comes on the scene and says, no, there's a much better way. And it's love-based morality that goes, Jesus Christ as a living embodiment, God with flesh and blood, uh, flesh and bone on came and gave his life for me. So I'm going to tell the truth because I know the son of man died for my lies. I'm not going to cheat on this test because I know it's dishonest. I know I'm pretending to be someone I'm not, who's smarter than I. I'm pretending to be someone who knows the answers when I don't. And I know that Jesus actually is the answer. And if he, you know, promised that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, I'm going to take the discipline of making an F plus on this test because he said no discipline seems pleasant at the time. However, it seems painful. But later on, for those who have been trained by discipline, there's a harvest of righteousness and peace. I love him enough to trust him enough to know that I can take my F and then go get disciplined and actually study and I'll receive a harvest of righteousness and peace. He says, Chain, this, is, this is what he's talking about. He's, it's like changing the way you think about everything. And even the way I try to do what's right. So when he gets to this desire thing, he says, we got to put off our old self. It's cor- corrupt. It's got bad desires. It's not that it does bad stuff. It's that it really wants to do bad stuff. All right. Now, <clears throat> if you've never experienced this, you're sinning all wrong. All right. There, <laughs> there is some aspect of sin, like that you just genuinely desire to do it. It feels good. If it doesn't feel good, you did it. Like, like I said, if it doesn't feel good, you did it wrong. And that's part of our broken, fallen, messed up flesh that part of you that wants that thing. That's what Jesus wants. That's why he says this. He says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. We gotta throw all that away and there's gotta be this new self that comes on and it's created after the likeness of God and in in his true righteousness and holiness. So it's not this fake righteousness and holiness morality that's based off of fear or based off of pride. It's actually true righteousness and holiness that is based off of God and his love. And so this is the new self I put on to boil it all down and make the one big giant point in all this is Jesus doesn't want to change what you do. He wants to change what you desire to do. And some of you have been so caught up in, you base whether or not you're living out a good Christian life by what you're doing or not doing. You have sins of commission, the sins that you commit, the gossip that you spread, the thing that you looked at that you shouldn't. And then you have sins of omission, the thing you know you should have said to that friend the things that you know you should have done to move towards reconciliation with somebody you know you had offended. You have sins of commission and omission. You base whether or not you're being a good Christian little boy or girl based off of what you're doing and not doing. And Jesus goes, yeah, you're more concerned with that than I am. He says, what I'm really concerned with and what I really wanna change is not what you do, but what you desire to do. And he comes on the scene And he says, the only way that's going to happen is if you fully are able to put off your old self and you're able to put on the new self, the new self is me in you, me in you. That's why every time we baptize somebody here at MCC, we give them a shirt. What does that shirt say on it? All things new. 
And baptism is what we do as an outward display that that is really literally what happens. That as we put you under the water, we are washing away all of your old self, all of your old sins, and we are raising up and all things are new in that moment. Not all, th- not all new things that you're gonna start doing, but all things new that you are in that moment, right then. See, that's what Jesus is after. That's what Paul is after. He says, this is the new life of righteousness that has been put on. And it's not your bad life trying to get better. It's Jesus' perfect life now inside of you, trying its best to come out of you, to get you out of the way. So that when you bump into people, when you bump into family, when you bump into conflict, the thing that people encounter is the controversial yet amazing love of God. In the same way that they could never bump into Jesus and be left the same, they never could bump into you and be left the same. Because Christ is in you. And what I want you to see as we get ready to take communion is that this putting off of your old self and taking on your new self, it's only made possible because it is exactly what Jesus did. See, Jesus doesn't ask you to do anything that he has not already done. It's the same divine trade, but it happened backwards. See, Jesus comes into you and goes, hey, you know how wicked, messed up, jacked up you were? I'm asking you to put all that aside and put on me. And the only reason he can tell you to do that and it actually be something that can really happen in your life is because he came in perfect, holy, righteous, spoke nothing but truth, had nothing but good thoughts about people, had nothing but wisdom in his heart, knew what to do before anybody told him what to do, did all of those things righteously, could heal, could speak truth, loved without any sort of bias, had compassion on everybody he met, never said a foul word, never had a bad thought, was absolutely perfect. In Ephesians, or Philippians 2, 6 through 11, it says that though being in the very nature God, he set his godness aside and took up, put on the very nature of a servant and slave humbling himself to become obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And so this, how, how, how in the world can I lay down my old self and put on my new self? Because Jesus laid down who he was to take on who you are. He put your sin on. He put your shame on. He put your lust on. He put your gossip on. He put your rage on. He put your laziness on. He put your fear on. He put your anxiety on. He put it all on, on the cross. So that you now in this moment cannot just put him on, but through communion, put him in. That's why I love our sacraments of baptism and communion. I hope you see them too beautifully in light of this passage. Communion goes, okay, how do I put on the new Christ? Well, here's how I don't put on Christ. I don't take the communion thing, open it up and pour it over my head and just start you know, rubbing it in, trying to get micronutrients into my scalp, hoping that it's gonna magically change me. I don't take the, the, the styrofoam wafer or whatever it's made out of, and just crumple it up and try to start rubbing it in my skin. I don't do even like maybe we do at some certain, you know, Catholic or Methodist holidays and, and put an outward display 
of something on my, my forehead. I don't take communion and put it in my chest pocket. I don't duct tape communion to my chest and go to school. And so everybody knows that I commune with God. No, this is the broken and poured out life of God inside of me. And that is the only way through which this new life will ever come out is if it comes from the inside out. So stop trying to do it outside in. And as you meet and you talk with Jesus today, I pray that you ask him a question like this. What part of my old self that I am not anymore is still here that you wanna get rid of? What part of the old me do you wanna change the most, Jesus? Is it what I'm still listening to? I'm still listening to old music. I'm still listening to, I'm still watching those old shows. I'm still hanging out with those old friends. I'm still in that old relationship. I still spend money that same old way. I still look in the mirror and think about myself that same old way. I'm just not strong enough looking or I'm not beautiful enough or I'm just too, you fill in your blank. It's an old way of thinking. And then maybe ask the question, Jesus, what part of my new self? And again, your new self is not you closing your eyes and going, who do I really wanna be? Your new self is Jesus, who are you really? And how do you wanna live through me? What part of my new self, you, my you self, do you wanna come out through my life? And meditate on that. Let him speak to you. Hear the voice of God in these moments. I'm gonna pray and pray you meet with him. And if you're one of the people here today and as we talked about baptism and this idea of your old self being washed away and new self being raised up, that hits home. And you haven't had that moment where your old self has been washed away and your new self is being raised up. Uh, friend, you're fighting the battle with one arm tied behind your back. You have not yet tapped into the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to enable you to be able to live out this new life, this new self, this created in Christ Jesus and baptism is your step today. And to ignore it, I'm gonna be very um, blunt here, to ignore the call of God on your life to be baptized today or soon, to make that known today, what I believe be to do what Paul talked about in verses 17, 18 and 19, to harden your heart to become callous to God speaking to you even in this moment. So if you're here and you do long to be baptized, I'll, I'll hang out right up here um, as the song plays. You can come and talk to me. I'll be here after the service. Um, if you're a little shy, that's okay. You're gonna eventually have to get over that if you're gonna follow Jesus, but not necessarily today. You can fill out one of those connect cards and take that step that way and write it down on there and say that that is the step you wanna take to give your life to Christ through baptism, have your old life washed away and be raised up something new. You can put that in one of those boxes back there or you can bring it up here to me. But don't let your heart get hard today. Don't get callous. Don't see the light and close your eyes. See him and know that he wants to draw you close. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Meet with your people today right now, in this very moment. Speak to him. Simple truth, your simple gospel. Help, help Jesus. I'm afraid of what will happen if you don't help, so please help. In your name, amen.